Welcome to the New Books Network. So, okay, so it's fringe group. I mean, really, it, it is because, the, you know, the, what does the church have? Uh, 5,600 bishops, and none of them are openly integralist. Kevin Vallier is a philosophy professor who's interested in Catholic integralism, a mostly online intellectual movement that thinks the church should take over the state. Something that made sense 1,500 years ago after the collapse of the Roman Empire, but not so much today in our pluralistic democratic age. You don't just have to take over the state, which is what the American integralists like Vermeule focus on. You also have to convert the church. And I mean, right now we have Pope Francis, who has privately called integralism a plague. And although there is some dispute about what he's meaning by that term, but he's an Argentinian. He gets, I think, the idea. I've never heard of this. It's not something Catholics I know talk about. But what I appreciate about Professor Vallier and his new book is his goal to help us all talk together with patience and grace, which includes really listening to people we disagree with. So why not talk it over on Almost Good Catholics? Welcome to Almost Good Catholics, a conversation about theology and apologetics about religion and culture. I'm your host, Chris Odinitz, and I get to ask interesting people who've thought about the big questions to share their conclusions, to explain what we know, how we know it, why we think we know it. I hope this dialogue may help us approach the truth and have a really great time doing it. If you'd like to join the conversation, please email almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. Kevin Vallier is Associate Professor of Philosophy at Bowling Green State University in Ohio, where he directs their program in philosophy, politics, economics, and law. Vallier's interests lie primarily in political philosophy, ethics, religion and politics, political economy, trust, and political polarization. Those things are especially important at this time, uh, especially here in the United States as we gear up for another presidential election. Professor Vallier is the author of four monographs, five edited volumes, and over 50 peer-reviewed book chapters and journal articles. Today, we're talking about his most recent book, All the Kingdoms of the World, on Radical Religious Alternatives to Liberalism. It'll be on sale September 1st, 2023 from Oxford University Press. We're recording this in July, but I hope to release it on the last day of August. Kevin Vallier traces the Roman Catholic anti-liberalism movement known as integralism as a core case study. He zooms in there, but then he zooms out to talk about faith-infused liberal movements around the world in general. This is an extremely interesting topic, but what I like especially is that Vallier's goal is to turn down the heat in our political discourse and provide a framework for liberals and their radical critics to have a productive conversation rather than conflict. So welcome, Professor Vallier. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm glad to be here. I was trying to think of a joke for you about Catholic conspiracy theories, but I couldn't find one. So I'm going back to an old, old Jewish joke that I heard as a child, which Uh-oh. is there's, yeah, there's two, <laughs> there's two guys sitting. One of them is reading the protocols of the elders of Zion. And the other guy says, how can you read that garbage? That is, that is a anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. And the other fellow says, I know, I know. But when I read this, I feel so powerful. <laughs> <laughs> Um, <laughs> I see the joke and I see, I see why you're leading. <laughs> <laughs> but before we talk about integralism, if I'm even pronouncing that correctly, integralism. And there's no standard pronunciation. I say integralism, but others integralism. say integralism. It just, just doesn't really matter. I'm thinking of it relating to the word integrate. So integralism seems anyway. All right. All right. So integralism. But before we talk about that, uh, you begin your book by describing yourself as a Christian and a liberal. I think uh, please tell us what kind of Christian and what kind of liberal and what are your commitments here as you begin this this adventure? 
So um, I uh, was raised a Christian, but I was a, a Methodist who became a Baptist. And then, you know, it was the early 90s in the South. And so I became an atheist because, you know, that was the cool way to react to six day creationism and all that sort of thing. Um, but when I came back to the church as an adult, um, I became Lutheran. And then four years ago, I became Eastern Orthodox. Oh, wow. Um, so <laughs> it's been a journey. Um, and I thought a lot about um, the changes. So I wrestled a lot with my with my faith, um, th- trying to think it through. Um, but I'm a pretty uh, traditional Eastern Orthodox uh, Christian theologically. And so with respect to Catholics, I, I, I'm one of the... So I guess minority Orthodox likes to stress continuities uh, rather than differences. And so I actually think our disagreements are probably not in, enormous, mostly confined to papal primacy um, and the degree of it. Um, so, you know, I'm I, I'm about as sympathetic to Catholicism as I think Eastern Orthodox person could be. Uh, as for liberalism, um, there's kind of two, maybe three senses, uh, which I I'm a liberal. So I take liberalism to be a political tradition that stresses uh, the importance of four different values in shaping government and 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 how social institutions should operate. I don't see liberalism as primarily a theory of the good life or the theory of the ultimate purpose of the human being. Um, liberalism is a theory about what government and other institutions ought to do and the values that should govern those institutions. Um, and those four values are these. Um, the first is the sort of natural freedom of the individual. That is, no one's uh, naturally the subject of anyone else. This is the kind of possessive individualism where people have the right to do whatever they want. Uh, the moral law, the natural law indeed applies to them. But the authority of persons over other persons is something that has to be uh, constructed either by God um, or by us together through a kind of social compact. I think we're also natural equals, not in the sense that we have equal abilities, but that we have equal authority over one another if we have any at all. Whatever rights we have, we have them all the same, and we should be treated equally before the law. Um, the other two commitments are toleration and the harmony of interests. So, uh, you know, a commitment to toleration is, I think, an, an, an understanding that uh, reasoning through a variety of different issues um, in political philosophy and moral philosophy and religion are very, very, very difficult for even very honest people to do well. And people can end up in lots of different places. And it's important for that reason, I think, to tolerate each individual's free exercise or group free exercise of reason um, and and lived experience. And so that means, you know, we we try to avoid uh, religious and moral coercion where we can, not so much because we think there's nothing that's right or wrong, uh, but simply out of sort of respect or honor for their own for their own reason, the divine thing in them. And finally, the doctrine of the harmony of interests, um, which I, I find through in the liberal tradition, but it's not the most dominant thread, but it's the idea that uh, society is not inherently a conflict. It's not inherently a race between some groups and others. We reject class conflict, we reject racial conflict, gender conflict, um, religious conflict, economic conflict. We think that ultimately society can be shaped so that people can get along, not perfectly by any means, um, but in a way that can be mutually beneficial in the main. Um, So, and I'm a liberal very broadly, I'm a liberal in that I believe in the political values of freedom, equality, toleration, and the harmony of interests. That's a very succinct uh, answer. And I'm very pleasantly surprised. I think uh, I think we're pretty much the same. <laughs> we have <laughs> tremendous kinship with our uh, Eastern Orthodox brothers, and as you know, there's Eastern Orthodox Catholics also who have the same yes. liturgy, yes. but have the communion with the Pope. And uh, there's it's just 
all over the place. I, I run into Catholics who are doing the Byzantine tradition or, yeah. so, you know, Ukrainian Catholics or that sort of thing. So um, yeah. I, I understand exactly where you're coming from. And likewise, I share your view of classical liberalism. I'm very interested in equality of uh, opportunity rather than equality of outcome. I'm very interested yeah. in uh, the equal dignity of all people, you know, uh, and their, their, their God-given um, uh, value and so on. You know, things that the, the 18th century framers of this country uh, have planted in us all, right? But yeah. you, but there's not everybody is like us. <laughs> no. And there's this whole group of integralists, um, and you sort of answered this, um, in, integral could be fundamental, like an integer or unified or cohesive, like integration or in, or even uh, integrity or something else. Who came up with this term? Who are they? What do they want? Um, well, so let's let's back up and do a little bit of uh, a little bit of history, um, which is one of the ways I began the book. Um, after the fall of the Western half of the Roman Empire, um, states uh, there was no powerful nation state in Western Europe for for centuries. And one of the results of this was that the Catholic Church expanded to perform many of the services and provide many of the same goods that the Roman Empire had. So, you know, dioceses were originally Roman imperial jurisdictions. The Pontifex Maximus was the title of Caesar, not the Pope. Um, not that the Catholics were sealing any of this, but actually just by necessity in terms of providing, again, certain basic goods and services in terms of law, uh, marriage, all kinds of different things. So what started to happen was that the church would look at itself and its practice, which is very different from the East, and say, okay, well, what does God really want? I mean, what is what is the relationship between, say, what the church is doing on the one hand and what sort of the secular courts or the secular arm uh, of society is supposed to be, supposed to be doing? Um, and the theory that developed, I think, that really became mature in the 11th, 12th, 13th centuries and lasted, I think, through the 19th century is this doctrine of integralism, but it wasn't called that for a long time. It wasn't even called that until the 20th century um, because there wasn't a main contrast. And here's roughly the thought. Look, the God ordains the state and the church for the ultimate good of the human person. The state is devoted primarily to the earthly common good of the human community, and the church is devoted to the sort of spiritual common good of the human community, both in this life and the next. But the church's end is nobler. Because it has to do with greater things, things of greater importance. And so that suggests that. Can I, can I interrupt, this, can I interrupt yeah. you for context? We're still talking yeah. about the, the Roman Empire has fallen. Yes. Total chaos rules the world. It turns out these bishops who are in place know how to read and understand what a law is. Yeah. So we're still like it is the year 500 Gregory the Great that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, well we're getting we're getting down even to the the 11th century which I'm, okay. I'm explaining how the how this um self-conception sort of came came to be between say around the 4th century down to down to the 11th. Okay, so um, we now we now have kings, right? Uh, we have yes. kings, we have a holy roman emperor. Uh, yes. Okay. And, and and so now there's this question which is, you know, the the church has has this whole legal system right? The canon law system. And it has all these canonical courts. And in many cases, it was performing all kinds of normal secular functions. Um, and in many cases, it had uniquely religious functions, for instance, to judge heresy, apostasy, to punish sin, and so on. Um, and in many cases, particularly as states got larger, see, it was going there, 10th, 11th, 12th centuries, it made sense for the church to call on the state to help enforce its law or rather at least to back its law in some broad sense. Um, and, and the reason for that was that states were actually powerful enough to do something, um, particularly the rising French state at that time. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so the way that the, the church began to think of its role is that in some cases, say, if they excommunicated a heretic, the heretic was considered, you know, a social danger, a, a public enemy um, that, um, you know, if they didn't repent after a year that the state would imprison them um, and maybe execute them um, after a, a, a proper trial. Um, and so the idea here was that the state was sort of back the church's authority and help the church achieve its mission, say that would help ban books. Like St. Louis actually burned like 20,000 Talmuds. You know, he was a, a great king in lots of ways, but, you know, that's just an example of the way mm-hmm. that he followed through with what the church asked of him. So here's the thought. The church is, has this sort of nobler aim. It sometimes needs the state's help. It's not the boss of the state entirely because God has ordained the state directly to do what it does. Infidel kings, for instance, have God's authority to rule over their own people. So then there was this question, which is, okay, well, the church is like the state superior, sort of. And this is what happens where you start to see debates between popes and kings. And you have kings saying, oh, no, no, we have ecclesiastical supremacy. We can appoint our own bishops. This came to be common in France, the Gallicanism. Um, And then popes who were thinking they had all kinds of temporal authority, in part because they believed in this forgery of the donation of Constantine, where they thought that Constantine had given Pope Sylvester his diadem in exchange for curing him of leprosy. Um, And so that the popes could actually bestow the title of Roman emperor. And so so you had these two extremes, right? This one that said, okay, the king's in charge of ecclesiastical appointments. The other says the popes in charge can make or unmake kings. And By the time you get to the Reformation, um, the pressure to articulate what precisely this relation is um, becomes extreme because James I says, now all the British, or the English rather, they have to um, swear allegiance to me over the Pope. And so what you get at this time is the two great theorists of integralism, Francisco Suarez and Robert Bellarmine. And here's how they understood the idea. Let's cut, these guys are early 17th century figures. That's right. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so you started with the 11th century. And yep, I'm sure many of our listeners will remember there was a controversy between um, yeah the investiture contest. Yes. 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 Gregory yeah. the seventh, I believe, and um, yeah. uh, the Holy Gregory Rem- the seventh, and and Roman Emperor the Henry the fourth. And yes, the the emperor, you know, found himself kneeling in the snow until he got pardoned by the emperor. Outside of Canossa, exactly, and then, but it didn't end well for for the uh, Pope in the end. But like that, that existed, and then then you're going yes. to the Reformation, which begins with Luther, but with Henry VIII. So we saying, can we yeah. can we can talk a little about investiture contest. I was I was I'm still trying to give the speed run, but okay. um, but but it's important because the idea, the doctrine there that the Pope was pushing for was the idea of the liberty of the church and the idea that the church would have liberty, particularly over its for its own legal system and for uh, control over its own clerics. Um, and this this actually became, you know, an issue um, much later in the, you know, in the um, in the early 14th century with Philip the Fair and Boniface the Eighth and Philip the Fair trying to say tax clerics or try clerics in his own courts. So in very many cases, what's going on is this question about these two competing legal systems and what their relationship was, these two competing you know, polities, if, if, if you'll allow it. Um, so in the, in the 12th century, 13th century, um, it, that starts to become pretty clear what the ideal is. And then, of course, when you have the Avignon papacy and the breakdown uh, of, of having uh, more than one pope, or rather that's the breakdown, rather. 
yes. is having more than one pope. <laughs> um, that becomes harder to institutionalize, um, but it nonetheless remains, you know, the sort of mainline position. So when it comes into the hands of the counter-reformation theologians, particularly Cardinal Robert Bellarmine, who, you know, was was beatified in 1930 and um, was uh, made a doctor of the church in 1931. Hmm. Um, and um, his work um, defended what he called the indirect power of the pope. The indirect power of the pope is to rule the state in spiritual affairs alone. And so the state could be co-opted in some way or another so that the church could use it to help to back its own edicts. For example, but, if there's an in inquisitorial. Yes. Okay. For instance, it, it could authorize the state to carry out the sentence of an inquisitorial uh, of an inquisition. Yes. Um, it could help the state um, suppress, say, uh, the King James Bible or something like that. Uh -huh. um, so, but not all like hor horribly authoritarian stuff either, though. I mean, like a lot, lots of different minor, you know, minor functions or roles um, that it could call on the state to help enforce. Uh, and so this was the position Bellarmine defended both against uh, Pope Sixtus V, who um, his work was almost itself placed on the index um, because he was saying that the Pope didn't have absolute temporal authority or very strong temporal authority. He pushed back against that. But he also pushed back against the Gallican view that the king could appoint uh, bishops. So he develops this doctrine of the indirect power. This is Pope Sixtus. Um, yes, Pope Sixtus V, I believe. Is that the same guy um, from the Sistine Chapel? Is a different guy? I, it might be. It actually okay. might be. But but that's worth that's uh, worth looking up. I should know right. that. Um, <laughs> but um, so what what happens over time is that the church is over all the centuries and centuries it's developing this complex integrated relationship with Christian states that include at least to some extent trying to promote the ultimate end of the human person and it sees that its sovereignty isn't total over the state because some of that comes from God but also it has to have some kind of superiority or else the state could kind of do whatever it wanted with Christians get get away with whatever it wanted to get away with um and so so what you 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 see in effect is the development of this doctrine of integration between church and state where the church has a kind of limited sovereignty that's integralism as I understand it, that's the yeah. ideal. Now, integralists will say lots of other things about politics, but what makes them different from, say, other Catholic natural law theorists and traditionalists is their belief in this ideal, that there's the sort of ideal relationship between church and state, and that it's one of integration of this kind, where the superiority of the church is officially recognized in the law. And, and that makes perfect sense if you have a Christian kingdom if you're, you know, if you're King uh, Henry and you call yourself defender of the faith or King Francis or King Charles. Yeah. It makes a lot less sense to me in a pluralistic uh, yes. nation of immigrants like the kind we have here. Yes. But what I wanted to give your readers a sense of is, is how the church was thinking of itself over the centuries politically and legally yeah. and its relationship to the state. Because if you if you look at the way that the church developed, the development of this doctrine makes perfect sense. Right. Yeah. You, you face these these hard theological constraints. The one is God appoints the, the state directly to do certain important things. On the other hand, the church has this nobler authority. It has all authority on heaven and earth is given to it. And so you have to kind of reconcile these things and how they how they 
fit together. And so it's no surprise that, for instance, when the French revolutionaries and the Napoleonic Wars, all these things are ravaging Europe that are, um, you know, gradually reducing the Pope's lands and titles and freedom, um, that in the 19th century, this doctrine was in certain respects implicitly reaffirmed. Yeah. Um, it was never expressly dogmatically defined. Um, but it wasn't, in, in, I think, in practice, if you read, say, Pope Pius IX, you read Pope Leo XIII, it's clearly what they think is the sort of ideal political arrangement. But, and, and but they they're see, afraid if they uh, insist too much, it might fall apart. Yes. Their, so, like, I yes. can think of that big painting where Napoleon is being crowned by the Pope. And instead of having it, he yeah. just takes that crown from the Pope and puts it on his own head, the, the laurels, yeah. and then he puts one on Josephine's head. This, yeah, the, it, this this goes back to this yeah. goes back to Charlemagne actually. There being yeah. confusion over where his authority came from. Right. Um so um but but yeah, so I just wanted to give your listeners a sense of like, well, why why is this doc what is this doctrine? Where did it come from and why did it ever make sense? Mm -hmm. And that's why. That's yeah. the story. Um in brief. So so what starts to happen in the 19th century is you have a variety of very conservative, very anti-liberal popes um, that wrote a great deal on the topic. Um, and the particularly, you know, following Vatican I and the, you know, the sort of the definition of a very strong role for the pope, right? Not just in terms of papal infallibility, which wasn't made up then, but but was 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 dogmatized. That and also the church, the, the pope's universal jurisdiction over all bishops. And so you, you you come out of the late 19th century with this very, very, very strong affirmation of, of papal authority in a world where the Pope had almost no political authority outside of very Catholic countries. And even there, that authority wasn't of the sort that existed, say, in 13th century France. Um, Were there it was more moral. I don't remember. I wish I should know this myself. Are there papal states in the 19th century that they vanish with the unification yes. of Italy? Yes, I okay. believe so. Okay. Um, so, um, but yeah, there are papal states well in the 19th century, but I I forget exactly when they ended. Okay, which is again something I should know right off. But <laughs> Me the too. Um, the thing that is important about the pluralistic context is that it was pluralism that was for practical purposes making integralism infeasible, right? Like it didn't it didn't even matter if integralism was true; you just couldn't implement it because there were say too many Protestants. Yeah. So one thing that's critical to integralism is the idea that baptism makes one a citizen of the church. That's, of course, that's scripture, that's tradition, but that in virtue of becoming a citizen of the church, you acquired certain legal liabilities. For instance, that you could be brought up in a trial, brought to trial for, say, heresy or apostasy. And so in principle, Protestants are canonical criminals. Now, maybe they're invincibly ignorant, and so they won't be convicted. Um, but this was even a possible a possible legal status for Protestants into the 1917 Code of Canon Law. Yeah. So you could have the prosecution of a Protestant in principle, even into 19, well into the 20th century in principle, right? Because yeah. you didn't replace the 17 Code until 1983. But obviously Vatican II is setting that aside. But, and it's not actionable, really. And so in a certain sense, stops mattering precisely just because of the Reformation just making it impossible because, you know, Protestants were under the ecclesiastical authority in virtue of their baptisms, but actually making that authority effective didn't work. Uh, and then, you know, as nation states, you know, had been getting had been getting larger and larger and more powerful, you know, they just didn't care um, what popes had to say. They just ignored them, even Catholic states. 
Um, and so this arrangement that had existed in a world of uh, Western European weak states with a pope uh, that was very powerful, as opposed to the East, where you had many powerful bishops, but one uh, sovereign state uh, that was effective for, you know, from the, say, the, the fourth century all the way down through uh, the 14th. So very, very different in arrangement in other parts of Christendom, but that made sense for the place and time that it was. And the more pluralism you get, the less relevant and effective integralism becomes. Down until the Second Vatican Council, where many in the church decide that they're going to set aside this doctrine uh, altogether. So, for instance, when Jacques Maritain and, and John Courtney Murray are writing on this topics, um, on this topic, they're well aware of the indirect power. In fact, um, Maritain has a kind of integralist book that he wrote early on, The Primacy of the Spiritual, where he talks about the indirect power. Um, Murray talks about this in a number of his articles. He doesn't call it the indirect power, we'll often call it, oddly, the first view um, yeah. rather than the second view. But they both knew exactly what was going on. They both knew, you know, even if this doctrine is new to your listeners, at the time, the early 20th century, everybody knew what it was. They all knew what was going on. And there are a variety of factions of the Second Vatican Council who, when they came together to produce Dignitatis Humanae, took different things away from it. So there are different, there are, you know, a number of different parties. The, the Murrayites, I think Thomas Pink has made the case, did not actually win out in terms of the interpretation of the document, which would be much more sort of liberal universalist in the sense that, look, there was always a human right, a universal human right against religious coercion. So all the religious coercion the church used was wrong and inappropriate, even in its, even, even um, in centuries past. Uh, Maritain's view that you get in the man in the state um, and that proves very influential. And I think, you know, is very influential with Paul VI, Paul VI is Maritanian, um, that, well, maybe that had been appropriate in the sort of sacral or sacral, sacred age. Um, but that the underlying logic of civilization had changed such that now that we live in sort of pluralistic conditions, we can have a regime that's based on natural law, the dignity of the person. Um, but the underlying logic of modern civilization simply doesn't allow for integralism anymore. And so this is something that we should uh, set aside, uh, something we should set aside. Um, and I think it was the Maritanians who who carried the day in the understanding of Dignitatis Humanae, although the church was so concerned to be part of the post-war, post-World War II order that there had been a lot of actually almost internal diplomatic pressure that it be able to be seen as on board with the UN Declaration uh, of Human Rights. Hmm. And that the Catholics had been involved to some extent. I think Maritain's status there is disputed uh, somewhat. Um, he was involved in some way or another. But um, the thought was, oh, look, no, we're for universal religious freedom now we're for we, you know we there were questions before we understand that um but look um, um we're totally we're totally on board with the human rights the order of human rights um yeah. and so i think that led many in the church to say well um yeah of course they they end up functionally having murray's view the sort of standard liberal view i think that's the starting point for the the uh lay person who has no idea what the in integralists are up to yes that's where yeah. we assume everybody lands but but you're saying that is not the case. Well, I'm going to tell it's not <laughs> the case for a certain way of looking at Dignitatis Humanae, which tells us where integralism came back yeah. from. Because for a while after the council, it became the, most of the province of like Society of St. Pius X. Um, and, and they saw, look, Dignitatis Humanae, they read in a liberal way and they rejected it. 
And so for for decades, if you were for religious liberty, you know, if you were against sort of full religious liberty, you were against the council. And if you, you know, if so if you wanted to be against full religious liberty, you had to be against the council. Yeah. Until about 15 years ago, where a very good philosopher and traditionalist Catholic, uh, Thomas Pink at, at King's College London, um, started to develop an alternative interpretation of Dignitatis Humanae. Um, one that would sort of catch fire uh, online, particularly actually through his very widely read pieces on academia.edu of all places. Okay. Um, and so, so Pink makes the following case based on reading the sort of commentary within the church on um, the various documents, like the drafting of Dignitatis Humanae. He argues that effectively what Dignitatis Humanae is about, when it declares a universal right of religious freedom, that's the right of the individual and groups against the state alone. It's not about, say, a right of religious coercion against the church. It's only talking about the state because as the, the documents with the council show, um, they couldn't agree on what the powers of the individual were against the church. They would never have agreed, and so they just left it off the table. So Dignitatis Humanae, he says, is only about the state. And he does say, look, there are these Maritanians there who, even if they sort of trended in a liberal direction, they understood that, say, integralism may have been appropriate at, at, at some point in, in the past. And so he argues, you know, there wasn't here an in-principle uh, adoption of religious liberty in every context, right? It would be crazy for there to be total religious liberty against the church. Then comes the next step in his interpretation, and this is where I think people get off the boat pretty quickly, but it's an interesting move. Um, suppose the church wanted to reauthorize a state to serve as its secular arm. Just imagine maybe Malta or something says, hey, you know, we want to start, you know, helping enforce um, or at least backing canon law. OK, um, Pink says, look, the church could change policy, but there's nothing in principle to prevent that because that's a power of the church. It's the power of the church to authorize the state to use religious coercion because Dignitatis Humanae wasn't about the church. Now, most people will say, yeah, but it was about the state. The church can't authorize the state to do that. It would violate the dignity of the person. So they just reason in the other direction. They say, well, look, there's a right of religious freedom against the state, so the church can't authorize the state to use religious coercion. Whereas Pink reasoned in the other direction. He says, if we're going to make Dignitatis Humanae continuous with Catholic tradition, including Pope Leo XIII, we have to make the argument that the church could, in principle, authorize states to help it perform its function. And so he's, he doesn't advocate that the church go back to this. He just says that, that Dignitatis Humanae was not a matter of religious principle in the sense that it departed from what came before, but rather that um, the church changed its policy, but it could change its mind again. I don't day. see how he makes the leap from a monarchy in Christendom where a bishop or a pope crowns a king, right? Or like the other examples you had, you know, like all around the world, somewhere the monarch gets his authority from heaven, from the will of heaven to something like a republic in the 20, 21st, 20th, you know, century where clearly <laughs> the, the government gets its authority from the consent of the governed, right? There is a break there. And how do they say, no, no, it's still the same deal rather than in, you know, in the 21st century, no state gets its power from the church in any of its constitutional documents or principles. So this is really interesting because um, 
it turns out that even the uh, Bellarmine and Suarez were open to the idea of having a democracy. Um, they did. They were willing to allow that secular power could come from below. Um, for instance, that God, by making people free and rational, they could come together and agree on a social compact. It's crazy that, to say this, but it's true. Suarez was a social contract theorist hmm. um, and an integralist at the same time. The problem is the authority of the church, which we know must come directly from God. And so the rulers of the church um, can, at least in principle, transfer their authority to a monarch, to a republic, to a democracy. And Leo XIII, I think, is an integralist, and it says, look, you can have democracy on secular affairs. Now, here's the problem, of course. If you have a democracy and integralism, as I argue in the book, it's going to fall apart immediately because democracy encourages disagreement. Yeah. Um, and so even if you don't you have like restrictions on free speech, you're going to get something a little bit like Islam, where if things go too far in the democratic direction, then there are problems. If then a dictator takes back over and tries to sort of right the ship. Um, I just don't think that an integralist democracy would even begin to work. Um so you would end up having to have some kind of, I think, uh, constitutional monarchy. Um, and then, of course, you're going to run into all the problems that come up with constitutional monarchy. But in principle, in principle, yeah. you could have an integralist democracy. So you could acknowledge the consent of the governed, let's say, over secular affairs, but deny it um, on spiritual affairs. Because, of course, Christians have to deny it on spiritual affairs unless we want to be Protestants. Okay, so am I correct in thinking that the integral the integralists are a pretty small, pretty animated online group of journalists and professors? Are there any important clerics? You know, we're a very hierarchical Latin church. We listen to the Pope. The we are the we listen to the bishops. Are there any bishops out there who are saying, "Aha, we need to have a Catholic democracy here"? Like I don't know, like, yeah. like Franco or Pinochet or something like that. Yeah, they they um some integralists, not pink, um, but um, have, like let's say like Adrian Vermeule have expressed at least in, in passing um, that uh, Salazar and Franco's regimes are underrated. Um, not that they would be for fascism or anything like that, <laughs> but I do think a number of them think that a a a Catholic authoritarian regime would be better than a liberal democracy. I think many yeah. of them do think that. So, okay, so it's fringe group. I mean, really, it, it is because, the, you know, the, what does the church have? Uh, 5,600 bishops, and none of them are openly integralist. There are sort of guesses about who might be sympathetic based on different things that they've said. And this I also talk about in the book, just in terms of feasibility issues, which is that you don't just have to take over the state, which is what the American integralists like Vermeule focus on. You also have to convert the church. And I mean, right now we have Pope Francis, who is privately called integralism a plague, and although there is some dispute about what he's meaning by that term, but he's an Argentinian. He gets, I think, the idea. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. So, um, and then his new appointment of the CDF. So, you know, we're pretty, we're pretty far away from having enough integralist bishops to elect an integralist Pope. And we're pretty far away from an integralist Pope deciding to actually act on it. Um, yeah. And I talk about all the different conditions that would have to change. I mean, you imagine, I mean, the Pope's basically going to have to, I mean, it gets, I mean, the book, I just show like, how ridiculous it is to think about going to this. I mean, the Pope's going to have to have some kind of military power. For <laughs> right. And then not only that, but even the, the 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 Catholics themselves, like one of our problems is that only 30% of the Catholics think the Eucharist is 
literally the body yes. and blood of Christ. And half the Catholics are, or something like that. I don't know if it's half, but a bunch of them are like, you know, are pro-choice that like to, to uh, Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi, you know, we are very comfortable uh, as a, as a, as a religion, keeping our religion in one part of our lives and our politics in another part of our lives. Um, and I think that's a problem. I don't have an answer for it, but I certainly don't think it's the overthrow of the Republic. Yeah. So, I mean, the interesting thing is the difference between the British integralists that were really getting started 15 years ago and then the American integralists who've really been going kind of full tilt since uh, Trump was elected. Um, the British integralists, you know, I've, I've talked to them all. I get along uh, with them all well. And um, and their, their view is like, yeah, we're not trying to take over the government. I mean, this is not anything we're interested in. We don't care about American politics. We want a Catholic revival. We just think that part of the need for a Catholic revival is for the church to take itself seriously as a polity and to actually start holding people accountable for sin and punishing them. Um, and so their view is the only way the church can revive is if it takes itself seriously as a polity. Now, of course, I think they take that, it, they take that thought way too far, um, but I get it, right? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, if you talk to Pink or Alan Femister or Father Thomas Crean, you know, they're they've just said to me, look, we've got to have a Catholic society before we can even have this discussion. But um, Vermeule and the American integralists just have a different theory of social change. They're very influenced by a common kind of picture of elite change, elite led social change on the right which is that the left, you know, the wokesters on the left, you know, they kind of control things from the top down and that um, people on the right might as well too. And that people on, you know, the masses will tend to conform uh, to where they're led. And so it's just a matter of having a progressively elite or uh, some kind of alternative elite, something being is, some kind of regime change. That's so, that's such a good observation. I, I feel like this is a, the matter of the pendulum swinging this way, swinging that way. Yeah. And that this might be a reaction to, um, the, the all the woke ideologies that come down with this sort of sort of like I've got all the answers, you know. We've got all the answers. Yeah. My, you know, if you don't if you don't subscribe to this, then well, you're a I don't even want to know what language to use. But you know, some kind of Stalinist or yeah, uh, you know, corrupt, absolute, morally corrupt. Yeah, you're morally right. corrupt in in an absolutist yeah. way. And one of the um, you know, you're fighting fire with fire, but we all know that the best way to fight fire is not fire; it's water. <laughs> yeah. Right. So why why did yeah. they come up? And another very clever thing you write is that this is appealing to young Catholic conservatives who sort of feel sold out by the previous generation. And there's a, yes. um, you call it a 200 proof political Catholicism. But if you try to drink anything that's yeah. 200 proof, you wouldn't like it. You know, even something that's 80 proof, you, you want to add a little water to it. Before yeah. You drink. yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the sort of my broader research program in terms of a kind of trust-based liberalism focusing on depolarization and building trust in institutions um, has been this idea that, you know, we not only need certain institutional ways of trying to address the polarization and disaffection and alienation that we see, um, but we also have to have an intellectual task, which is to answer the ideologies that flow from these kinds of positions. Liberalism tends to do best when institutions and people are pretty trusting and polarization is lower, even with lots of underlying diversity. Um, and what happens is when you get a huge amount of diversity and polar, and then particularly polarization on top of it, is that people start to see the other side as the enemy and no longer as merely an adversary where, look, if they win an election – it's not the end of the world. Now, if they win an election, it is the end of the world. We're pretty much told that every single election cycle. And so what you've got on the left, for instance, is a whole variety of elites that have never interacted with real person of faith in their lives, or if they have, it's been unknowingly and briefly. 
Um, and they think anyone who doesn't hold the current positions on sort of the LGBT issues could only disagree because they're morally corrupt, even though current views on trans issues are like a decade old in certain respects. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's this weird way of casting all of these people, almost all of humanity for almost all of human history as just totally morally benighted. It's such um, a good example. Yeah, that's such a good point. Because you also, in your book, you talk about many other cases, not just here in the United States, not just here in the Roman Catholic Church, but uh, yeah. in India, the, the Hindu yeah. movement or the yeah. revival of the Russian Orthodox Church and yeah. Putin's uh, yeah. hyper-nationalist thing. So we're yeah. in a polarized age, which everybody knows. Um, yeah. But what's going on globally yeah, is, yeah. It, you know, and, and my, my broader story about this is that, you know, look, for like all of human history, our natural spiritual and political impulses are there, they're expressed, and they're many times they're mixed together and nobody thinks anything about it. Or they d dispute about how to mix the spiritual and the political, like, is it going to be Islam? Is it going to be Christianity? But there's no one really saying that, like, let's just like totally separate them in life, not just let's not have an established church but like let's separate them like in life liberals and socialists are saying this in like the 18th and 19th century but it's pretty much confined to western europe it's like nowhere else is that true it's the 20th century where these secularizing movements the more sort of moderate liberal type and the more aggressive and violent socialist type um actually starts to take root around the globe and so we're just the 20th century was just very very weird yeah. when it came to the relationship between faith and politics globally and I think it's no surprise that with the collapse of socialism that we're seeing the revival of these movements all over the world. So it's not just Russia, the Confucian revival in China, which she has slowed down, I think, a good bit. But we'll see what happens um, with the next president. Um, obviously, the Hindutva movement, I've been studying it a lot over the last month or two because it's very different than integralism, Confucianism, Islam, because there's not a coherent um a very sort of coherent laid down system, theological system and uh, uh, sacred texts in yeah. the same way there are in those other faiths. Um, but, um, you know, Islamism is not done. Um, I think, you know, with ISIS, they kind of put all their eggs in one basket um, and um, you, you don't hear as much uh, from the more extreme groups now, but there's all kinds of sort of Islamic sentiment in, on behalf of uh, a sort of religio-political regime. Um, and I think that uh, that is pretty much a permanent feature of Islam. I don't really see it going anywhere. Um, the really interesting story has been the recovery of this uh, within Christianity because it's it's been in fits and starts. The idea that the Russian Orthodox Church would have even revived is it what I regard as a miracle and a tragedy that it's been turned in the direction that it has. Um, but um, yeah, I would say that these kinds of views are probably strongest uh, among among Russian Christians. Um, and 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 some Eastern European Christians um, who just never knew the separation of church and state. It was either communism or Islam or orthodoxy. That's it. There was no alternative. Um, and so those Christians are just not really used to um, the kinds of situations that Western Christians have been in. Um, so you're starting to see a little bit of like Protestant Christian nationalism, but it's not really that serious intellectually because Protestantism was so focused on the priesthood of the believer and liberty of conscience that integralism like of a Protestant kind doesn't like make full sense. All right. So what's um, the what's the play? I, I know that let's say I'm living in 1978 Iran and I'm really disaffected with the decadent Shah and his Western looking yeah. blah, blah, blah. And what I really want is a pure theocracy. I'm going to make yeah. some audio tapes. I'm going to get my friends together in a pickup truck with yeah. some AK-47s. 
there's nobody in America, not not, yeah. pro, not Professor Pink, not not none of these guys are yeah. like, okay, what we need is more machine guns and let's go. Yeah. So this is um this gets into the kind of interesting, unique elements of the American integralists, of which you know, Pink is just he's 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 concerned with church renewal. That's like if you look at all of his writings now, like his criticisms of Francis, he's in a lot of careful work about when it's appropriate and not appropriate to criticize the Pope that he he's writing on this year. So let's just leave the Brits out. Right. Just focus on Adrian Vermeule, Sarab Amari, uh, now Pat Deneen, Chad Pecknell, Pat Smith, the sort of the Twitter integralists. Yes, Twitter, tw yeah, very um, good. Twitter, Twitter yeah, people. The Twitter integralists. Okay, so yeah. so so look at the kind of books that they're publishing if you want to get a sense of what they're trying to do. Um, you've got Vermeule's Common Good Constitutionalism. This is sort of his new judicial philosophy. Um, and um, I think it's what's interesting about that book, which I've, I've read twice, um, and I think pretty carefully each time, is that on the one hand, he is suggesting that judges interpret uh, the Constitution in light of a kind of robust conception of the common good. But there's a very fascinating page there that only people who know the integral stuff can follow, which is that... Um, he says, look, I mean, there are just the more important part of the common good is the supernatural common good. And he says, but I'm not a theologian. I'm just a civil lawyer. So I'm just going to leave that aside. Um, but if you you plug that part in, you just say, oh, well, look, he's an integralist. And he thinks judges should be interpreting the constitutional line with the common good. What happens when they're in a position to interpret the constitution in light of the supernatural common good, um, if they ever were to be? Um, now, that's a very complicated question because they're secular courts and they may be bound not to do that um but i see this idea of staffing the state the administrative state on which he's an expert and the judiciary with people that have these kind of post-liberal views as 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 planting seeds so that you have a kind of american right that's post-liberal and that will kind of make space hopefully one day in the far future for something like a catholic uh catholicization of American Christianity, um, which has happened to a large extent at the elite level, um, but not at the but not at the mass level. Um, if you look at, say, Pat Deneen's book, Regime Change, um, he's only recently kind of joined up with a group of uh, uh, of American journalists. Um, but there's a lot of little hints in Regime Change. Um, um, but the the biggest uh, hint of all is not just his common good conservatism suggesting the continuity with Vermeule, but the discussion of integration, which doesn't talk about Catholicism, uh, at the end of the book. Um, the, there's it's it's not hidden code; it's just straight up code. Like it to anyone who knows the stuff, you just read it. What they're trying to do with the post liberal thing is break down what they see as liberal orthodoxy, plant the seeds for a new kind of religious conservative elite, and then gradually sort of Catholicize that elite. That's what I see is their kind of long term goal. They all think liberalism is going to collapse on its own, that it's it will uh, collapse under its own internal contradictions. <sighs> um, and then you just kind of got to be ready. Uh, to come in. So if you read the chapter four of the book, um, I go through like in their writings, particularly Vermeule's strategic writings, where he's kind of laying this out. Now, I don't know. I don't think they think we're going to have integralism in 10 years. What I think they're trying to do is just, and it's extremely radical. They're trying to think of how to upend American civilization in the long run. Um, I mean, I think yeah. that's, I think they're quite serious about it. 
I think they're thinking this what being a Catholic requires that the attempt to kind of marry American is uh, you know uh, American institutions with Catholicism is heretical, um, that it was never going to work, and so the only thing for American Catholics to do with their great influence at the intellectual level among Christians is to try to gradually change the minds of the younger Christian elite and to place them in positions of power in the administrative state and the judiciary with the strategy that Vermeule has named integration from within. Yeah. So yeah, you just have to read his. Yeah. Yeah. I know. And you take it very seriously and you look at uh, historical antecedents of the 20th century where, yeah, you know, on the one hand, I feel like this is nuts. On the other yes. hand, I feel like you and I would be sitting in a German beer garden in 1925 and saying, look at those guys. Those guys are not going anywhere. Look at that stupid art student. <laughs> yeah, look at him marching around in a stupid uniform. Who's going to fall for that? Yeah. And then yeah. and then probably feeling really silly 15 years later. So even though I'm extremely skeptical with the movement, I really enjoy the analysis. And um, I, I, I take the point that we should all be, you know, extra careful Catholics, I hope, are all listening to Pope Francis, who speaks about a culture of encounter, who's super ecumenical, who talks to religious leaders across the faith and, you know, I'm sorry, across the world of, of all faiths. How should we, ordinary Catholics or ordinary Greek Orthodox Christians or ordinary Americans of any kind of um, faith commitment or, or political commitment, how should we talk to each other to find the middle ground and avoid avoid these kind of, uh, you know, dark future possibilities? Yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting question because I think the... Um... The American integralists don't really have a good theory about how to treat those who disagree with them. Um, and I think, you know, this is but this is a problem of, in political philosophy that I, it's really been central to my work um, ever since I was a graduate student. Um, you know, I won't go into all the the details, but um, I think basically their view is this. All there is are religions. And they ultimately govern and structure civilizations. And there's a liberal religion and it structures liberal civilization. And all there ultimately is are friend and enemy ideologies. So there's nothing like neutrality. There's no fairness between doctrines. There's no ultimate cooperation. There's just true, new, true, the true religion and false religion. And there's just a plain contest between them. It's extremely conflictual worldview, one that's antithetical to my own faith and my own politics, and that I was heavily indebted uh, to Carl Schmitt um, uh, in his at least pre-Nazi yeah. <laughs> writings uh, before he became the crown jurist of the Third Reich in any, in any case. And Carl Schmitt, who uh, says that politics, that war is the extension of politics. Yes. Yeah, yes. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And Foucault says it's too politics. You know, so, you, you know, uh, uh, Clausewitz says war is politics by other means. And then they say politics right. is war by other means. Yeah, that's right. I said it backwards. Yes. Thank you. Oh, it's uh, a, yeah. yeah. I have I have, a you know, like we said, I got about uh, six or seven minutes. What are the important things that I did not ask that, that uh, you really want people to know? So, um, you know, first, the, the, the book called The Kingdoms of the World, um, you should totally buy it and check it out. Um, it's, you know, it's going to be uh, about $20, uh, $21 on Oxford's website. So I think it's well within the reach of a lot of people. Um, I also think that people will find a little bit about the structure interesting. So not only do I kind of motivate the project and explain what integralism is, but I actually defend it for about 60 pages. Um, I try to give it the very best shake that I can. Um, before I give my sort of three major arguments against it that, that I think we can't transition to it, that I think it's unstable, that it is it'll, even if we could get there, it would collapse, and that I think it's unjust in, in, in certain ways it uses religious coercion on the faithful um, in a way that's inconsistent with, uh, with Dignitatis Humanae. 
um, and it's a requirement of respect for religious liberty for the the unbaptized. Um, and so I give you know pretty detailed arguments against the view. Um, but one of the things I'm trying to do for Christians in general is is not merely to sort of say okay integralism is like is is not true, um, but rather um, hopefully trying to impart a little bit of an idea to younger Christians about how we might reason about things politically from within our own traditions. I really want um, people to read the book and get a sense for what uh, political theology can be. Instead of just tweets and blogs and fights and meltdowns on Catholic Twitter, um, we can we can actually have like a really rich discussion because I do think that one of the results of trust and you know lower trust and and, and high polarization in the United States um, is that Christians have a call to rethink their politics kind of from the ground up. Um, and we have the opportunity to do this in digital spaces, um, but that it requires care. Um, and so what I'm trying to do is to show people, look, we well, can take this really outlier view and it has a certain kind of internal elegance and simplicity that enables one to defend it. But the key is learning to reason about these issues dispassionately and carefully. And so that's why I've structured the book in the way that I have. Um, and so that's what readers, I think, will find interesting is not just a criticism of integralism, but a defense of it before I criticize it. And then the final point, which is that I do extend it to other uh, anti-liberal religious ideologies and other faiths. I focus entirely on Sunni Islam, contemporary Sunni Islamic thought and contemporary Confucian anti-liberal thought. Um, but, um, you know, I think the framework can be expanded. Uh, to other movements um, as I explore them. So I think a lot of people will find that element uh, interesting as well. And at the very end, I propose a way of kind of reconciling religious anti-liberals um, uh, to a certain kind of highly federalist liberalism. Um, I even float the idea at the end of integralist charter cities, which is kind of a fun way to, uh, fun, a fun way to end. Um, but in general, um, that's what I want to give the church. What I want to give the church is... Um, uh, tools to try to think through uh, our political theology um, and not let it be dictated to us by either side of American politics. That's, that's excellent. Um, that's valuable. I hope people learn from you and learn how to talk to each other with grace and patience and love and to find all the places where we are strongest together and to disagree gently, right? Yeah. So thank you very much, Professor Vallier. Uh, would you like to close with a prayer or a blessing for our listeners, for our country and our troubled world? Sure, sure. Well, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Uh, Father God and Lord Jesus, please help American Christians, help this American church to break free of the distrust, the anger, the hatred, the friend and enemy name-calling and cruelties of everyday political life. Help us to think with the mind of Christ about politics, um, to be willing to go down to first principles, to use our God-given reason, uh, to think through the way in which you want us to conduct ourselves in politics. Forgive us for our unkindness to others. Help us to heal political divides. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Nails, spear shall pierce him through the cross. Be born for me, for you, and hail, hail the word made flesh, the babe, the son of
Chris Odinitz and Kevin Vallier recorded this conversation, episode 67, on Monday, July 17, 2023. It was the feast day of St. Francis Solano, a Spanish missionary in the New World, serving in Bolivia, Paraguay, and Argentina. He spread the gospel to the indigenous people and learned their languages quickly, at the same time protecting his native brothers and sisters from Spanish oppression and recalling the colonists to their baptismal integrity. For he knew from experience that the lives of Christians sometimes greatly hinder the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our music is from Josh and Margot of the Great Space Coaster Band. Their website is www.gscoasterband.com. Our logo, the image of the dog, is from a window at the Santo Domingo de Silos Monastery in Spain and is taken with the kind permission of the Dominican Friars of England, Scotland, and Wales from their website, english.op.org. I'm Chris Odinitz. Please email me with comments at almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com or just say hello and thanks for listening. I'll talk to you soon. This, this is Christ the King whom shepherds God and angels sing.